Hello everyone, this is Rohit again with the New York Organ Donation Awareness Corporation. And today, we have an interview of Caitlin Amos, who was a heart transplant recipient, and she is now currently a cardiovascular genetic counselor. And she was interviewed by Edwin and Lasia, and let's just get right into it. So uh, I'm Lasia, I'm a freshman at NYU right now, and I've been with ODAC for since last semester and um, I love conducting these interviews and getting to hear um, different viewpoints and experiences and it's amazing so yeah excited yeah. to talk to you cool yeah thanks for asking me too it's I don't know if you've, if you've learned this but it's fun for organ transplant recipients to process their stories because they're always like you know pretty intense and meaningful so it's always like a cool opportunity to get to talk <laughs> yeah no definitely pick that it's amazing too because they just so many different stories. It's amazing. Totally. Yeah. Okay. So we'll start with the interview. Right. Yeah. So how old are you and what is your profession? Like, what do you do for a living? Yeah, um, I'm 33 and I'm a cardiovascular genetic counselor. So that's kind of a, a I'm not going to say newer, but a smaller niche in healthcare. Genetic counseling is, and then I specialize in cardiovascular. But I'm literally two days into that job. <laughs> um, so I just finished grad school like in December um, training for this and um, got a job at Duke and have just started and I'm two days in. So just learning how to be one, but. That's great. And which organ was donated to you? A heart, so I had a heart transplant um, in the fall of 2018. Um, my, my story is kind of crazy, I like, do you want me to tell her? Or do you want to? Do you want? Is it easier for you guys to just ask questions? I don't know what's uh, easier. You can go because I was going to ask you what condition and what year it was, so it yeah. all correlates. I I'll tell it in a little bit, probably more like stream of consciousness way, and then if there's things I mm -hmm. forget, you can feel free to ask me and and have me clarify. Yeah. But um, I I was really healthy. Like I didn't have a heart problem growing up. I played sports my whole life. Um, went to Baylor University in Texas to play soccer actually, and. Um, within my first couple of years, just like really struggled with physical symptoms, like shortness of breath and fatigue and um, things that you shouldn't be struggling with your first, like, uh, you know, a couple of years playing a college sport. And so that led us to a lot of doctor's appointments and found out I was diagnosed with something called dilated cardiomyopathy, um, which is just basically like your heart is enlarged and weakened and it kind of like is a vicious cycle and um, progresses into heart failure. Um, so I was diagnosed, that was like 2007, I think, um, when I was diagnosed, I was 19 and I lived with dilated cardiomyopathy or DCM, um, all the way until I was 31. So it, it was not, um, acute, I guess, in the way that it presented or the way that it showed up in my body. Um, but it was something that, that over time got worse. So it progressed in its severity, um, so I knew at some point, I don't remember at what point in the process that like transplant was what was going to happen because my heart wasn't gonna get any stronger. And um, I had to have things like a defibrillator and was on medications and had different episodes in the course of those 12 years. Um, but I thought I had more time before a transplant because I think my team had been taking such great care of me. And so I, um, in the middle of my 20s, decided to shift my career goals from being an administrative assistant to a genetic counselor and had to take all these like science classes at a 
um, community college and, and do prereqs and apply. And I got accepted to a grad school for genetic counseling in, in Houston. And I say all that to say that, that um, I probably would not have done that if I had known that I was like right around the corner from transplant, just because you usually don't sign up for a grad school and, and try to get a transplant at the same time. But um, I started grad school in fall of 2018. So August, 2018, moved to Houston and November got my heart transplant. So things sort of like declined very, very quickly over the course of that fall. Um, and yeah, and I received a heart um, and I again had, had different like episodes kind of put me into the hospital but was admitted for good at the beginning of November and got my transplant on November 27th, 2018. So it was a total of about three weeks of waiting which in the big picture is like quite fast. And do you know who was the, uh, the donor? Do I know who the donor is? Yeah, like the age. Oh, I know that um, I know that my donor was young. I know that my donor was um, between 20 and 30. So in their 30 or in their 20s, but that's all I know. I don't know uh, male or female or um, another gender. I don't know um, anything about their family or who they were. I don't know anything. Um, and I've, I've written them letters, uh, a couple letters at this point, like there are Obviously, you guys would know about this, but like regulated systems through like LifeGa or Donate Life in Texas that you can write these letters to the family. Um, and I've done that a few times, but I haven't heard back. And so I don't know who, who I'm carrying with me right now, but hope to someday, very, very much so hope to someday. And how did your loved ones react during this entire process? Yeah, so I think it's interesting because there's sort of these different phases of my, of my, um, process. I'm like diagnosed at 19. And obviously there's, there's a lot of loss and shuffling of my life at that time, because I'm having to like, give up being a college athlete and kind of shift what, what I've always done is be like, um, you know, physically capable and strong in my body and have to sort of weather this slow but progressive decline. Um, so I think that first phase, everyone was like sad, but over the course of those 12 years that I'm learning to live with heart failure and um, all the side effects of that, everyone is um, acknowledging it, but like probably um, in a coping mechanism or self-protectively like optimistic, like people are still wanting my heart to get better and wanting me to get better um, and wanting to hope for the best and um, give me a pat on the back and say I'm capable of things like grad school and things like that. So um, everyone is optimistic. And I think probably what's embedded in that a little bit is some self-protection and denial. Um, and that came out when I was admitted for transplant, I think particularly my family, when, when doctors started talking about that, like, you know, we're, we're going to like list you for a transplant. We're going to put you in ICU. It, it was certainly, it certainly took everyone back. Like people, family members act shocked at first. And I think that's completely understandable because it was just um, even with this long-standing diagnosis, it was, it was something hard to kind of um, palate and process. Um, but once everyone got over that initial shock, everyone was just incredibly supportive and present. And, you know, this was when I was admitted, it was kind of near holiday time. So we did like Thanksgiving in my ICU room and I had just incredible, incredible support from my nuclear family to like family friends in Texas and Virginia. Um, so everyone shifted and, and was really attentive to the process, but at first I think it's hard not to be in some level of denial. And 
since you said you were diagnosed in 2007 and got the heart uh, in fall 2018, during that time, were there any other potential matches that didn't uh, happen? Um, yeah, so I was only listed for, again, for three weeks, even though I was like, um, had dilated cardiomyopathy for 12 years. Um, but during those three weeks, I did have um, what we call kind of a dry run. And I actually had had, this is kind of cool, um, another girl who's a good friend, her name's Sarah, she had been transplanted at my same hospital like nine months beforehand. And so she actually came to visit me in the ICU and kind of gave me, you know, patient to patient on the like low down, what, what do I need to know that maybe doctors aren't thinking about? Not that that's their fault, but they haven't thought about to tell me. Um, and she actually gave me a heads up that sometimes you can have these dry runs, which is what you're asking if, if there's um, a match that doesn't go through. And it was like the night that she left or she left that day and told me about this and I had no idea that was possible. Um, and I got a phone call that night um, for a heart or a match that I said yes to. And we did all the prep that whole next, you know, eight hours and then ended up that the heart didn't, the pressures didn't check out. And so we sort of had to abandon ship and not do it, not go through with it. Um, and so that's obviously like a huge emotional whiplash um, probably for the doctors and the whole team too, but certainly for, for me and for my family members. Um, and so that was, you know, you kind of go through this like high adrenaline kick and then you come down, you're kind of a little depressed again and, and waiting, wondering when it's going to come. But um, I, I think that it would have been infinitely harder if I hadn't had that friend give me the heads up that that can happen. Um, and for me and my story like that, again, my, my actual waiting period for a heart was so short that that, that happened in a week later, I actually got the call for the heart that um, was given to me that's in my body, so. And what, would, what, what do you find the hardest part of being an organ recipient? Yeah, I, I've tried to think about this question a lot. Um, I think that, I think that there is, there are like physical challenges for sure. You know, you, you've probably heard this, that transplant is like another shot at life, but it's not um, a cure. And so there's trade-offs with things like side effects from medicines and the actual <laughs> surgery and recovery is, is not easy. It's, it's really, it takes a toll on your body, um, it takes a toll on your mental health. It takes a toll on a lot of things, but um, I think, beyond just sort of the physical piece of that and how much your body changes over time. Um, I think, I think what's hard is like, just, it's, there's just a weightiness to it. <laughs> you know, there's like a, there's a weightiness and like a sobriety to um, being alive because someone gifted you with their organ after they passed. And there's a weightiness to like, what your family and what your friends had to go through in your suffering. And there is a weightiness to um, kind of getting a second shot at life and like, what, what do you do with that? And so I think there's sort of this mental and emotional weightiness that I, I don't pretend to like feel every single moment of my life, but certainly um, I think makes how you choose to spend your time both wonderful and challenging too. So I don't know if that, I don't know if that's like, what I would say in another interview, but that's where I'm at right now in my process. <laughs> no worries. And were there any other complications after transplantation? Like, I had a, uh, I was really fortunate. I overall had a really smooth course, but um, I didn't have any like major rejection, which is one of the, the things that they're always afraid of with solid organ recipients. But I had, I had a couple like back and forths. Like healing is never linear in any any form or fashion, and so I remember. 
um, like I progressed really well and got to leave ICU post transplant um, and then had like pleural effusion, which is like, you know, fluid building up on your lungs in a really acute manner and had to go back to ICU for a while. Um, I had a lot of um, GI problems that followed me through for the next like year. And I had some, some threat to my kidneys just because of the immune suppressants being so um, intense on your kidneys, but also because of the 12 years prior that I had heart failure, I was taking medicines that were, that are pretty hard on your kidneys. So, um, I had some, like, I say minor because in the grand scope of what can go wrong with, with transplants, they were minor, um, comparatively, but they, they definitely caused some anxiety and, and definitely had, um, they didn't feel good for a while. They required a lot more appointments and check-ins. And like I said, some back and forth between the floor and the ICU. So. And how has your life changed emotionally and mentally since receiving the organ transplant? Yeah. Um, I just thought of another answer to your question to maybe di differentiate it. Can I answer your first question first and come back to that? Yeah. Um, and your first question just being what's so hard. I think one thing I wanted to add about what's so hard about transplant is like probably anyone with um, such a significant illness or condition like cancer or something like that. I think the, I think what becomes hard about stuff like that is you have to be so attuned to your body and you have to be so attuned to sort of what it takes to, to survive that sometimes it can kind of like turn you a little inward. Like you can be a little, I mean, I don't want to say this like, like bashingly, but you have to almost be sort of like selfish in some ways or it turned inward, I think to, to survive. And I think when you're forced to do that so much to, to have to like turn back out and want to like engage the world in a way that you're probably wired to engage. Um, that shift is hard. I think chronic chronic illness or acute illnesses actually kind of turn you inward. And I think that's a hard dance to, to navigate. Um, but you've asked me how my life changed. I think that, like I was saying in a similar way, the weightiness of life. Um, I think that people who go through heart transplants or other organ transplants have just like kind of a deepened awareness of how how many tensions and how many paradoxes there are in life you know like you walk around with this like new aliveness like my body is like so much stronger than it's been in 12 years I can run I can run like a 5k I can like have mental and um, physical stamina that I haven't had so I have all this aliveness but like it came at such like a cost it came at like this like person dying you know and and that, I don't say that lightly but but like sort of the death and the life that's like joined or like how much I've had to lose over the last two years and how much I've gained or how much grief there is in this like donor's story and um, even in my own family story and what we had to go through but how much joy there is that I get the second shot at life and you have some like survivor's guilt but you have such a deep amount of gratitude and I just think there's these tensions that exist in life but I think when you go through something like this um, you kind of walk around with, a, with an awareness or a weightiness to that um, even if you're like cracking jokes or just like watching a movie or like hanging out with your friends or studying for an exam or going to work, I think that it's hard to escape. What would you say to the donor and what would you say to use about signing up? To my donor, I think, who are you? You know, I think there's this crazy intimacy you have with your donor and also not, you don't know um, who they are. I don't know, I don't know my donor's name and I don't know my donor's face, but like, my donor is with me and I carry my donor 
um, into the life that I live right now. And so I think, who are you? <laughs> um, even though I know you, I think thank you feels like not enough and trite. Um, I think I often have this kind of inner dialogue where I'm like, how am I doing? You know, like, like you've given me this life and we're doing this together. Um, how are we doing? Like, are we, are we living this well? Um, so lots of things to ask my donor and say to my donor. I'm still probably trying to figure that out, but to other people, I would say, um, donate, <laughs> you know, uh, it's something that I think when I turned 16, I put on my driver's license cause I thought it was a good thing to do and didn't think anything of it. And and I think that's how life goes. Like until you really encounter a story that, that resonates with you, there's not a lot of meaning to it, but um, whether you can wrap your head and your mind around the meaning or it's just a easy thing to check, like it, it, is, it is quite literally life-changing for um, the people that it impacts and the people that um, it can save. I think uh, Mary Oliver, I love poetry and Mary Oliver is one of my favorite poets and she has this line in one of her like famous poems where she asks this question of like, what are you gonna do with your um, one wild and precious life or something along those lines. And, and she just kind of puts that to the reader. And I think that's my question for youths. It's my question for people who receive hearts and lungs and kidneys and livers is um, what are you gonna do with your life, you know? And I think that that is like such a great question to live by. And um, I would just, I would wanna say that to the youth <laughs> to answer your question. And what would you describe your life now with the new organ? I know you somewhat uh, yeah. said on, on the basis, but. All my questions are kind of like inter intertwined. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm impassioned. I feel like I've gotten this chance to sort of like um, come alive again and be reborn. So I think there's an excitement there and there's like a wonder and sort of a, an imagination for life that I think I probably kind of like clamped down um, when I was diagnosed with dilated cardiomyopathy. Like I'm really excited about this job. I'm gonna start working with, with patients in the next few weeks that have cardio conditions. And um, I think that my life has changed because I can hope and I can imagine again. Maybe that's a succinct way of, of telling you I can imagine a future for myself that that maybe I wasn't able to for a while um, in all different manners. So. And in regards to COVID, how did it affect you in terms of your health? You know, I think COVID. Um, COVID probably heightened my sense of vulnerability. I think anyone that's immunocompromised or has gone through something where your body just gives out in the way that mine has, um, it heightens your sense of vulnerability when the whole world is sort of a threat for a virus. And I think particularly with cardiomyopathy, you know, a lot of times that's caused by a virus. And so you just, there was certainly a, a stretch of feeling like just another layer of confrontation with mortality and vulnerability. Um, and then on the flip side of that, on a more lighthearted side, like you probably hear this a lot, but <laughs> solid organ recipients have been like practicing this their whole, you know, like ever since you receive um, an organ and you're living immune compromised, you're sort of, you're sort of training for COVID era. Like I, my whole first year of 2019, I was wearing a mask and having to be super thoughtful about being around crowds and like um, hygiene and being careful. And so in a funny way, like a lot didn't change from that manner. Like I'd been practicing pre-COVID, um, 
but I think again that the, the tensions of of both that being familiar and and also kind of serious. And I know how before you said how you switched to a cardio counselor. Yeah. Um, would you say that uh, your diagnosis was the main reason? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I did undergrad um, at Baylor and obviously was like having to kind of deal with this like diagnosis at the time and all the like identity shifts of that. Um, but I was doing like journalism and communication and went into this pretty open-ended administrative role at a, at a university right out of college and um, definitely didn't have any health sciences on my radar. And I actually met a genetic counselor who, who was my genetic counselor. And he, um, we were trying to understand if my condition itself had a genetic component. Um, I'm sorry about that. Um, anyways, that I met I met Matt Thomas, this genetic counselor. Um, I was living in Charlottesville, Virginia at the time, so this was after college. And and I had always, you know, since my diagnosis, wanted to figure out a way to be on the like provider side because because of how formative all of my providers were both Matt the the genetic counselor but all of my cardiologists and everyone's ever taken care of me I was just so taken by the way that they could intercept my life when I was suffering and so I wanted to kind of wind my way back around but I met this genetic counselor and um he both took care of me but also like we we got to talk more about what his career looked like and so he's actually the one that sort of helped me understand the path to going back to school <laughs> and taking on this, um, what is so worth it, but, but long path again of taking on the prereqs and going to grad school and training. And um, it was certainly motivated and, and still is by, by my diagnosis and, and then intensified because I got my transplant while I was training to be a genetic counselor. So it all kind of culminated in 2018, which is crazy. Uh, I don't have any more questions. Uh, Lazi, do you have? Yeah, so I have a couple questions, but before that, um, do you know a woman named Aline Gugosman? Yeah, so I was just, yeah, I was telling um, Edwin that, that I don't know her personally, but there's this like kind of small community of, of people our age um, who have received heart transplants, and she's someone that is like, obviously so incredible and so vocal about like, because she's a doctor, um, so vocal on like social media about her experience and about how you live with transplant, and so I think in our little community, She's someone that we all kind of like look to and she helps, um, I think, give words and language to what a lot of us have gone through. So I don't know her personally, but we have certainly connected um, via social media and like someone that's super, I don't want to say a mentor, but definitely like a, a leader in the way that I understand how to live my life post-transplant. So yeah, because I was just, I interviewed her um, okay. just, like in January and like when you were telling me your story and I was like, oh, this sounds exactly like <laughs> Yeah, well, that's why. I mean, that's why it was like, so when I found her story and she might not even know this, but like when I found her story, it was so, so important for me to hear because at the time that I was recovering, I was like, am I crazy? Like, should I be trying to finish grad school after a heart transplant? And like, you just, you, you have these meta questions about like, what do I do with my life? And I think she was such a good person to like, see be like no you you live like you you're given this like organ to like live and keep doing what you feel like you're like supposed to be doing or called to be doing and so I think um particularly her being a patient and provider and like being in the middle of training and all those things it's been super encouraging and important for me to get to like see how she does it yeah so. I just wanted to make sure that because I, I I wanted to put you guys in like contact or something yeah thank you for that. yeah thank you yeah seriously um yeah and so I guess 
my question to you is um, with like the way that you know you're still like coming to terms with everything that's going on um, in yeah. the future what do you hope to like get out of this I guess I don't know if I'm wording this correctly yeah um hmm. it's a good question maybe ask it like I think I know what you're asking but maybe see if you can ask it like in a different way like what what do I hope kind of comes from all of this or yeah. like how do you see yourself like emotionally mentally um, yeah yeah I think that that's a great question I think um at least in a practical sense, I really hope that this experience can um, empower me to care for patients well. Like that's, you know, that is why I've like done this about face in my career and why I am learning through like highs and lows, how to be a provider. Um, because I certainly hope that I can like be both honest and real with patients and also like offer them some hope and, um, you know, not false hope and not like, uh, optimistically in denial, but just um, an empathy and an understanding that, that I think is needed when you're going through this, these total struggles. So that's like, you know, in the next five to 10 years of my life, I hope that that is part of my vocation. Um, in a, in a, I don't know, in a bigger way, I think, um, I don't know, I think I'll have to live into the answer of that question. I think that there's certainly, I, I, there's certainly, things I want to understand about sort of the mystery of, of organ transplant and how it, how it connects people who have both gone through that. And, and again, how it connects, connects donors and recipients in ways that it's hard to name, especially if you haven't met them. But I, I, I hope to keep like being part of these conversations and, and telling my story and connecting with other people who have their own stories, because I think there's something um, really powerful and really big to it. But that's a little more abstract. I don't know what that looks like. I mean, maybe it looks like more like this kind of stuff. I don't know, but I think on a practical level, it's wanting to be present to patients and families that have to walk through these things. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, and another thing is that a lot of times that we've interviewed people, it's usually older people because when you think over the transplantation, you don't think young people. Um, yeah. So how has the experience been for you as like a young person going through this? Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's identity shifting. Like, and I think that, uh, I don't even know how to like name or describe that fully at this point, but I think I've had, again, these sort of two pivotal things. Like I was diagnosed at 18 when you're sort of becoming an adult with this pretty debilitating condition that really again, kind of limits your imagination and maybe what you allow yourself to desire or want. And I think, um, and then you're transplanted and that can go any direction. Ultimately it gives you life and hope and imagination again and it can but it comes with its own complications and limitations and um, I think it's I think it's hard sometimes to kind of measure your life against the conventional life cycle or life standards or life metrics and hard to kind of know when you're this age where you belong in that story and where you belong in this community of people who whose bodies are betraying them before maybe what you expected, you know, or like the world told you was supposed to happen. So I think there's a lot of maybe confusion and sort of identity shifts that happen within that. But I also think there's like this cool thing that when you go through in any sort of like adolescent or young adulthood, like any sort of suffering, it, it can like, um, 
I don't know, it can kind of deepen what I was saying earlier, just your understanding of, of the weightiness and the, the tension and joy of like how resilient your body can be and how dependent you are on everyone else and how deeply grateful and vulnerable you can feel at the same time. I think it can just kind of sink you into what is the most real and true about life. And, and you can like live that way at an earlier age than before you're, you know, maybe in your fifties or sixties. So again, these are generalizations and kind of, I'm thinking out loud as you ask me those questions, they're very good, but I, I think that's probably what I'd say for now. Oh, yeah, that's definitely, that makes a lot of sense. And I just find it really interesting that each person we've talked to, um, we talked to a man who had a transplant when he was 17 and now he's yeah. a lot older and he was saying, when he had his transplant at 17, he went about life like nothing happened. And then yeah. now he's coming to the terms of what happened and that he was given a new lease on life and everything. And yeah. I find it interesting because you had your transplant a little bit older, but you were able to go through this like life altering experience and like really learn from it. And yeah, yeah, that is super interesting. And I guess it's just, everyone has such a unique story and when they want to grapple with um, the, the amount of what a transplant can mean, you know? And I think at, at 17, I don't know that I would have done that either. And like, you're right. in just a short span of like a decade or something, I was like ready to start processing it. Or I had a slower amount of time to process it before the transplant, who knows, but everyone's story is really unique. And I think that is interesting that you're finding kind of a difference in how people look at their stories. Yeah. The one thing that I find that everyone has is this appreciation, which as someone who hadn't gone, hasn't gone through the process, I, I don't know what that looks like, but I can certainly tell from each person's story, there's this amazing appreciation that I just find, yeah, yeah crazy amazing. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's, um, I'm, that's cool to hear. And I think that I, my, my life resonates with that. You just, you kind of have no words for like getting up and going to work for taking a shower or going on a run and being like for it to happen you know they gave their life for this to happen and I think um yeah you, you just no matter how articulate or self-aware or not you are you just can't shake that that huge huge reality not to mention the hundreds of people in the hospital now the hospital that helped you like adapt to it so yeah I think it's cool to hear that appreciation and gratitude seem to kind of mark transplant recipients because I, I think that that's probably like, how could it be any other way? Yeah. And it gives me, and I'm sure Edwin too, it gives us like a totally different perspective on life too. Right? Sure. You speak to anybody who went through that and it kind of makes you realize how valuable it is. How yeah. Valuable, like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So maybe you should be speaking to the youths and telling them that. <laughs> you guys are, you're doing that. I, I'm so grateful that you're doing that. Seriously, it's so cool. Yeah, we try. Um, but yeah, I don't have any more questions, but would you like me to put you in contact with Dr. Gergosman? I'm not sure if I'm saying your last Yeah, time. I mean, we we have connected a few times, but you can just like, if you want to just let her know, say like, hey, Caitlin said that you guys had, you know, talked a couple times, but she's, I don't know, you can tell her whatever you want, but it would be it would be cool to have another kind of formal connect. I think that'd be great. Cause I, I feel a little bit like I see her from afar and I'm like, you're awesome. And I want to do what you're doing. <laughs> but yeah, no, That'd I can great. definitely send out an email and like CC you and just sort of cool you know put you guys yeah that'd be great yeah Definitely. cool thank you no problem. if you guys have any other questions I know a lot of stream of consciousness I know you guys gave me the questions beforehand but I'm not very good at it. it's just these are great questions you guys can be good counselors <laughs> um but if you if there's anything that you want me to clarify just shoot me an email but um have fun with whatever you're going to do with it <laughs> 
Thank you so much for taking your time to uh, be interviewed. Absolutely. Be in touch. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Uh -huh. Thank Take you care so and enjoy your job. All right. Thanks. thanks. Good luck. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. So that has been Caitlin's story. And stay tuned to our podcast for the next interview.